Hi, everyone. This is Scott Shapiro, and this is episode four, class four of the Jurisprudence Course podcast. So I, uh, I Googled uh, uh, how to um, increase listenership in podcasts, and they said that um, you really should have a snappy name uh, to your to your to your podcast, and I thought I was doing pretty well with Jurisprudence Course Podcast. I thought that was really catchy, but then I thought, well, maybe I could spice it up a bit, even more. And I was thinking maybe Sound of Jurisprudence, and I would begin with Sound of Silence as my my theme song. I was also um, toying with Pod Save Jurisprudence, um, and for. The Bernie fans out there, I was thinking about calling it Dworkin Trap House. Um, anyway, if you um, can, you know, give me feedback on the <clears throat> the best uh, name for this podcast, that would be great. Um, well, today, what we are going to be doing is talking about Hart's critique of John Austin's theory of law. I will begin by uh, just reviewing Austin's theory very quickly and then launching into Hart's critique. I would say that in, in, in my in my um, in my sense of how the course uh, jurisprudence course progresses, I feel like the course begins right now. Um, I think that Hart's critique of Austin is one of the great philosophical dem demolitions of all time. Um, you know, up there with um, with uh, Chomsky's uh, critique of um, the behaviorists and Skinner. Um, you know, just like a really masterful uh, critique, and then shows how to build off of the mistakes that Austin made. So what I'm going to do, I, I'm going to actually spend a lot of time on Hart's critique. First, because it's it's quite beautiful. Number two, because Austin's theory is, is still a popular theory implicit um, among many people. Um, and also because despite the fact that Hart's the concept of law, uh, chapters three and four, um, seem to be very clear and well-written. In fact, when you really drill down on it, it's Hart's objections are not always obvious. Um, and in some cases, they're downright obscure. If I, when I, when I, when I teach the course at, at Yale, I, read passages um, from the concept of law. I mean, we all, the, the, the class uh, looks on the same passages we read in and then read a couple sentences and ask students to tell me what they think Hart means. So I can't do that here. So I'm gonna um, try to get around that. But I think it's actually very important to, to 
spend time trying to puzzle through philosophical texts to see exactly what the writer meant um, when uh, they issue an objection or make an argument. So um, it's a shame that in this format I can't do that, uh, but I try to do the best that I can. So let me just begin. Um, and, and by the way, I, I'm, I'm, I, what, I, what, I'll, what I'll do is part one will be um, a review and discussion about uh, Hart's, um, Hart's critique of Austin's theory of obligation. And then I will move on to um, various attempts to try to rehabilitate Austin along various lines. I actually don't know how long that's going to take. I, it's not easy for me to figure out like part two, part uh, part one, part two, part three of this episode. So I'll after about at a natural break at a natural point, I'll just break and then I'll start a, a new a new part. Okay, so let's let's let me just um, start by reviewing. So <clears throat> we we talked about this. Um, last uh, episode, Austin's Theory of Law, uh, theory of law, um, law is rules plus sovereignty. Now, a rule for Austin is general command. A command is an expression of a wish issued by somebody who's both willing and able to impose an evil if that wish is not obeyed, and an evil that results from not listening to a wish um, Austin calls a sanction. Um, so it turns out then a rule is a general expression of a wish issued by somebody who is able and willing to impose an evil if that wish is not heeded. And the sovereign is somebody who is habitually obeyed by the bulk of population and habitually obeys no one else. So we have a very simple answer to the question, what is law? It's general commands issued by the sovereign. Or if we want to expand it, it's a general expression of a wish issued by somebody who's habitually obeyed, habitually obeys no one else, and is willing and able to impose an evil in case those commands, those wishes are not obeyed. Okay, so really easy answer to the identity question. And it's just really from Austin, from this statement about the identity of law, it's very easy to derive a lot of um, necessary properties of law. So for example, we know when a, uh, when a legal system exists. It exists when there are general commands issued by somebody who's habitually obeyed and habitually obeys no one else. It's just that you just go to a community and see was there somebody there who's a sovereign in Austin's sense and uh, is he issuing or she or they or it issuing uh, and by the way we will get to who exactly is a sovereign when we talk about sovereignty because it's not obvious who we should identify as a sovereign in modern legal systems but regardless um, we know when a legal system exists um, we know what its content is. We just see what was commanded. Um, we know what your legal obligations are because we look at what's commanded and see what you might be punished for. If I'm sorry, not punished. I don't want to use that that type of language. We we can see what's been commanded, and we can see what costs are being imposed on you 
uh, or likely to be imposed on you or might be imposed on you if you don't heed those commands. So it's like figure out what the law is. You just kind of see what the, if you will, the behavioral regularities are between expressions of wishes and obedience and possibility of imposition of sanctions. We said also that the uh, it's very easy to answer for Austin the chicken egg problem. Um, for Austin, uh, the chicken came first. There's no need to find ultimate rules which uh, confer authority on the sovereign. The sovereign just is somebody who is habitually obeyed and habitually obeys no one else. And Austin has a very neat solution to uh, Hume's puzzle. Um, how is it that if, well, so just back up for a second. So it's clear that on Austin's theory that legal facts are ultimately grounded in social facts, social facts of habitual obedience to the sovereign and the issuing of commands. Um, so Austin's theory is clearly a positivistic theory. Um, the sovereign can be an unjust sovereign, can be um, really evil, like a, like a reality TV show um, fraudster evil person, um, uh, and yet um, uh, still be the sovereign of an existing legal system. Now, that doesn't violate Hume's law, which says you're not permitted to derive an ought from an is because obligations, commands, sovereignty, sanctions, these are all descriptive concepts, not normative concepts. So we're not actually deriving oughts from ises, we're deriving ises from ises. Okay, so that's, that's just kind of review. Now, what Hart does in chapter th three of concept of law. So chapter three is about the critique of Austin's theory of rules. And chapter four is critique of Austin's theory of sovereignty. So we're gonna begin with chapter three, Austin's theory of rules. So one of the things that Hart begins um, uh, in this critique is by noting, as we, we said that for, because for, for Austin, all laws are general commands, and that commands necessarily impose obligations. Um, all laws are obligation imposing, or, or as Hart calls them, duty imposing. And there, it, it definitely seems as if lots of legal rules are duty imposing. So if you look at the criminal law, so we have a duty not to kill other people, um, without an adequate justification and torts, you, you duty to act as a reasonable person would under the circumstances. You can violate your duties of reasonable care, in which case then you become um, liable to uh, to uh, damages um, if you're sued in court. So it does seem as if um, the law does have rules that impose duties. But as Hart points out, there are also other kinds of rules that don't seem to impose duties, but what they do is, in Hart's terms, confer power. 
So if you think about the first year curriculum in a law school, you'll notice that most of the subjects there really are not about duty imposing rules, but rather power conferring rules. So if you think about constitutional law, I mean, the constitution is, it seems like just a set of laws which confer power. Same thing with civil procedure. Those are rules which confer power on private citizens, in in some cases, of course, public entities, um, uh, to bring suit. Property is the power to alienate, the power to transfer property rights, trusts and states, uh, and many other fields of law are, are power conferring. And it's just, it's, it's, I always find it interesting that Hart would bring up the, the idea that what's wrong with Austin's theory is that it only recognizes rules which impose duties, but rather, and not ones that confer power. Because Hart, before he became a professor, he was a solicitor, and he used to draft trust documents and conveyances and things were, which were all about um, exercising powers for people. So, you know, the, the, I, Hart is actually speaking for, <laughs> if you will, and he's, a, he's, a, he's you know, one of the great legal philosophers of all time, but he was a practicing lawyer, a practicing solicitor. And so he was exercising powers um, or helping his clients exercise powers uh, rather than um, dealing with uh, primarily duty-imposing rules. Now, we can recognize the distinction between duty-imposing rules and power-conferring rules, and this is a very fundamental distinction in modern legal theory, um, by by noticing that we talk about these rules very differently. So if you if you if you don't conform to a rule which imposes a duty, you have violated it. You have not obeyed it. You've engaged in a breach or a violation. Um, you're guilty. These are ways that we speak about duty imposing rules, but we don't say that when it comes to power conferring rules. So, like if you don't get two witnesses for a will, you're not guilty of any violation. You haven't committed a legal wrong. You just kind of fucked up. You didn't do what the law tells you to do if you want to have certain kinds of legal effects. So there's no punishment or sanctions associated with the non-compliance with a power-conferring rule, but it's rather that the law just doesn't recognize what you did. To put it to put it the way the law typically puts it, what you've done is um, uh, is a nullity. What your your actions are null and void. The power that you sought to exercise actually wasn't exercised and therefore have no legal effect. Now, take contracts for example. So contracts, there you know there has to be. In the, the, the rules of contract law are generally power conferring rules. So in order to form a contract, there has to be offer acceptance. That somebody has to make an offer. There has to be acceptance. There has to be consideration. There are all these rules um, about how to form um, a valid contract. Um, and if you don't um, follow those rules, 
you just have created an invalid contract. Um, like nothing, like nothing happened. Um, um, but, it's, but there are also duty imposing rules associated with contracts. So for example, um, not only um, can't you make a contract to like sell body parts, like you can't make a contract, a valid contract um, to sell your kidneys, um, but it's also illegal to even try. So contracts for the sale of body parts are not just invalid, they're also illegal. And you can tell by, by how we're describing this contract, whether we're noting that there's been uh, non-compliance with the power conferring rule, we note that by saying that the contract is invalid, or that you violated a duty imposing rule, we do that by saying that the contract was illegal. Okay, so um, this is a fundamental distinction um, uh, in the law between rules which are duty imposing and those which are power conferring. Now Hart says that um, that the reason why we have this distinction between duty imposing rules and power conferring rules is because the law has different aims in guiding our conduct. So a fundamental idea in Hart's theory of law is that the function of the law is to guide conduct, the function of legal rules is to guide conduct. Um, but within guidance of conduct, you can, you can imagine um, one of two reasons why you're guiding conduct. You can either guide conduct because you want to discourage people from doing certain things. Like, so I don't, we don't want people, well, we're in uh, the, well, I'm speaking to you right now from uh, the lockdown, uh, the shelter in place because of the coronavirus. And so I'm under duty to stay indoors subject to certain kinds of exceptions. Um, and the reason why the law imposes it is because it's trying to discourage me from going outside to acting on my wishes. If I want to go outside and hang out with my friends, the law says, I don't, you know, no, 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 no. But when it comes to, so, so the shelter in place orders, those are duty imposing rules. But sometimes the law guides conduct not because it's trying to stop you from carrying out your wishes. Sometimes the law is trying to give you the means for, enable you, for enabling you to carry out and to realize your wishes. So when the law provides for the ability to, uh, the, the rules for um, the formation of wills, it's trying to give people the ability and amenity to realize their wishes about the disposition of their estate after their deaths, okay? So it's not trying to stop you from doing something, it's trying to enable you to do something and then just gives you the conditions for doing that. Now, having taught this um, subject many, many times, I will, um, I know that listeners are thinking, wait a second, um, I think Austin can handle that critique. Um, and 
when I when I teach a course, um, students will often try to save Austin, and I think this is a great impulse. You know, um, just because Hart said that uh, there was a decisive objection to um, Austin um, because he only recognizes duty imposing rules, he doesn't countenance power conferring rules. Um, therefore, Austin's theory is wrong. People will say, no, 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 no. They actually he's uh, right, um, because Austin can respond in this way. So, of course, and, and I really want, to, I, I really encourage that kind of behavior, but um, what, what, what I'm going to do, um, I think it's a good time to uh, end this part, and uh, what, what I'm going to do is pick up various kinds of responses that Austin might use, um, or other um, people who are drawn to the Austinian line might use in order to respond to Hart's critique. And we're going to explore whether those work. Um, okay, so we're going to pick this up um, in the next. Hi, everyone. This is part two of Jurisprudence Course Podcast. Um, my son just suggested that I call the podcast um, Dear Jurisprudence. Um, I think that's that's pretty, pretty good. Um, okay, so where are we right now? We're talking about how might heart, uh, how might Austin respond to Hart's critique that the law consists not just of duty imposing rules, not just of commands backed by sanctions, um, because it, um, but, but, but also power conferring rules, which don't seem to be uh, commands um, uh, backed by sanctions, um, but rather the um, the provision of abilities to do things that you um, want to do, but wouldn't be able to do it without the benefit of the law. So it doesn't seem as if there are any um, sanctions associated with power conferring rules, um, as there is when it comes to be when it when it comes to duty imposing rules. Well, um, the first first um, thing that response that Austin might give is that actually power conferring rules are uh, general commands backed by threats of sanction. Now, what are the, what's the threat of sanctions here? It would be um, nullity. So in a duty imposing rule, there is the threat of, let's say, a fine or going to jail or being exiled or something like that. In the case of a power conferring rule, the sanction is nullity. So if you don't follow the rules for how to make a, a will or how to make a contract, you are sanctioned. There's an evil that befalls you, namely that what you wanted to do won't be done. So one response to Hart's uh, critique by Austin is to say, actually power conferring rules are um, general commands backed by threats of sanctions, where the sanctions here are nullities. 
So is that true? Can we think of the rules of wills or contracts as being um, general commands backed by threats of sanctions, which are nullities? Well, the first thing um, uh, Hart notes is that there seems to be a difference between power conferring rules and duty imposing rules when it comes to their relationship to sanctions. So in the case of a duty imposing rule, it seems as if you have this rule, which is backed by a sanction. So the sanction is, if you will, logically um, detachable from the rule itself, such that you can even imagine a rule without a sanction. So we could have um, social distancing rules or quarantine rules, which have no legally imposed sanctions at all on them. Um, or in the United States, um, it's often said that the president can't be prosecuted for what he, she, they does um, do during, um, when they're in office, um, and, well, it seems as if they're still under a duty not to engage in this behavior, but there's just no way to impose a sanction. But it doesn't make sense to say they're under a duty. But when it comes to a power conferring rule, it, it's not, it doesn't seem to make any sense to be able to detach the sanction from the rule itself. Um, you can't have success without the possibility of failure. So like, imagine, imagine the following rule. The following rule says, um, a will is valid if and only if it's made in writing and has two witnesses. And the sanction is nullity in case you don't put it in writing or have two witnesses. Now, can we subtract the sanction from the rule and still have a rule? Well, it seems you can't. Why? Let's say it says you only, there's only a valid there's only a valid will if you if it's in writing or there or it's um, and you have two witnesses. Well, now take away the nullity from that rule that would mean that a will is valid no matter what you do. But a rule that's successful no matter what you do, whether you put it in writing or you have witnesses, it's just valid, is not a rule. A rule is supposed to guide conduct. But if the rule says that you're supposed to do these things, but regardless of whether you do them or not, you're still successful, that's not a rule. That's just a, I don't know what it is. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, when, when, one way to think about it is that um, uh, power conferring rules are logically equivalent to nullity denying rules. So when, you st when, when, when the law says, if you put the will in writing, and you have two witnesses, you will have exercised your will-making power. 
that's equivalent to saying that if you put your will in writing and have two witnesses, then you will not have created a nullity. So it's not actually possible to subtract the nullity from that rule and still have a rule left. Whereas you can definitely subtract a sanction from a duty imposing rule and still have a rule left. It may not be a great rule, people may not listen to it, um, but it still imposes a duty. Okay, so this is, this is one argument that Hart used and, and uh, the pushback I always get from this and I think it's a particularly, I think it's perfectly valid pushback is to say, well, why can't Austin just say that if you subtract a sanction from a duty imposing rule, then you don't have a rule either. If a rule is general expression of a wish backed by threat of sanction, then if you subtract the sanction from it, you don't have a rule. Just like if you subtract the nullity from a paraconferring rule, you don't have a rule. And I think that's a good argument. I'm I, not a good argument. I think if you're, if, you're, if you're a committed Austinian, I think you're going to find that persuasive. Um, but I do think that there's a, um, uh, another um, argument that Hart makes, and it's not a very clear argument that he makes um, uh, in the concept of law, which is immune to this response. And it goes, it goes something like this. Remember that Hart had argued that duty imposing rules have different functions than power conferring rules. And I think, and I'd like to get back to that idea. And I'd like to frame that um, idea in terms of costs and benefits. So one way of understanding a duty imposing rule and the, and the sanction associated with it is that it's designed to impose a cost on you, make you worse off than you would have been without the sanction. So if you get thrown in jail, you're being made worse off than you would have been. The law imposes a cost to discourage you from engaging in certain types of behavior. In the case of a nullity, it's not so much a, an imposition of a cost, but rather the refusal to confer a benefit. The example that I would give is, let's say if, you, if your employer says, um, if you get to work by nine, uh, you'll get time and a half. So if you don't get to work by nine, the, the fact that you just get your regular pay doesn't seem like a cost. It just seems like you didn't get the benefit that was being offered to you. Because ordinarily you would have just gotten your regular salary, not time and a half. However, if your boss says, um, if you don't get to work, by nine, you're fired. Well, that's an imposition of a cost on you because that's making you worse off than you would have been. And so I think that is why it's wrong to think of nullities as sanctions 
because a sanction is something that makes you worse off than you would have been, whereas a nullity just is the, the refusal to confer a benefit that you would have gotten had you complied with the rule, but which you wouldn't have gotten had there been no rule in the first place. Okay, so I think, I think we really need to um, distinguish between um, whether there's an imposition of a cost or refusal to confer a benefit. If you can put it another way, we could think of a duty-imposing rule which threatens a sanction as a threat, whereas a power-conferring rule is more like an offer than it is a threat. It is an offer to make you better off if you comply with the wishes, uh, sorry, if you comply with the conditions. But you are not, but it, it doesn't make you worse off than you would have been um, without the rule itself. Okay? So, okay, so let me just review what we've done because we have a lot of dialectical iterations here. So we begin with Hart's critique, which says that according to Austin, all legal rules are duty imposing. And Hart says, well, actually, some legal rules, actually many legal rules are power conferring, which don't seem to be uh, rules which impose sanctions. So one response to this objection is to say, wait a second, and actually Austin did say this in uh, the province of jurisprudence determined, he said, look, um, when you don't follow certain rules, then you are, um, the, the nullity, the, the, the lack of legal effect, that's the sanction. And so all, Laws are general commands backed by threats of sanction. Some of them are like go to jail. The other ones are nullities. And Hart gave two responses to that response, which is one is that, well, nullities can't be sanctions in the way in which um, duty imposing rules have sanctions associated with them because you can separate a sanction from a rule from a duty imposing rule and still have a duty imposing rule, but you can't separate a nullity from a power conferring rule and still have a power conferring rule or any rule whatsoever. That was one response. And the second one is to say, actually, it's wrong to think of nullities as sanctions. Um, they are not the imposition of costs to discourage you from behaving in certain ways, but rather they are the refusals to, um, to follow up on the offers that the law makes to confer benefits. So they just have, they're just very different um, uh, functions. Uh, and so it's just wrong to think of a nullity as being the imposition of a sanction, but rather the failure to impose, uh, failure to confer a benefit, um, which doesn't seem like a sanction at all. I mean, if you, if like in the case of the, of the job, if you, if you don't get to work by nine o'clock, um, it's not like you're sanctioned by not getting time and a half. You're just going to get your regular salary. Okay, so this is um, uh, this is the response, Hart's response to Austin's response to Hart's critique. I want to now um, uh, address a different response that Austin might give, and in fact, it was the response that Hans Kelsen, the great 
um, 20th century legal positivist uh, gave um, to the idea that you might think of power conferring rules as somehow not being um, rules which impose sanctions. Kelsen also thought with Austin, although there's differences between what Kelsen thought and what Austin thought, but Kelsen agreed with uh, Austin that uh, the law are, um, are, are rules that are always backed by sanctions. And so, but he, in order to deal with this idea that um, some rules, um, many rules are not backed by sanctions, they're just failures to uh, uh, accord legal recognition to certain acts, um, the, his response was to say that these rules are not real rules. They're really fragments of power confer- uh, of duty-imposing rules which themselves impose sanctions. So let me put it in the following way. When Austin responded to Hart by saying that nullities are sanctions, what he was doing was expanding the category of sanctions to include nullities. And we saw that that didn't work. What Kelson's going to do is he's going to say, no, sanctions are what Hart thinks they are, except that the rules that Hart thinks are rules are not really rules. That is, power-conferring rules are not rules in their own right. They are fragments of rules. The only rules that ever exist are, 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 are standards which are backed by sanctions. So power-conferring rules are really just fragments of duty-imposing rules. Now, how he does that, we're going to get to in part three. I warn you, it's complicated, um, and I may not be able to do it justice over this podcast, um, but part three, we're going to talk about Kelson's response, and hopefully I can um, um, explain it in a way that's clear enough. Okay, see you in a bit. Okay, um, I uh, I have no idea whether I'm going to be able to explain this in this part, um, but I'm going to try. Uh, I'm also I'll I may make a video um, of this if people if if this is just inscrutable. Um, this is one of those parts where it's really really helpful to have a blackboard, um, and uh, I, I may also just post the the pages from legality where um, where I discuss this topic somewhat in depth um, but I'm just gonna try and if it's if it's gibberish then you can just um, you can just stop listening okay so first of all I want to say something about Hans Kelsen so uh, when I first I, I, I used to teach I used to give students selections um, from Kelsen, um, from General Theory of uh, Law and State, um, in 
in this section of the course. And I mean, students absolutely hated reading it. It's, I mean, Kelsen, um, Kelsen, you know, he reads like a German academic. I mean, it's just really dry and boring. I mean, Kelsen himself is just awesome. I mean, he's like one of the great men, I think, um, you know, uh, ever. Um, I wrote a lot about um, uh, him. Ona and I, Ona Hathaway and I wrote a lot about him in The Internationalists and his um, his uh, rivalry uh, um, feud with Carl Schmidt and the role that he played in theorizing um, uh, the Nuremberg trials and um, the role that war plays in international relations. And um, I highly recommend, I mean, if you just want to read a really great story about, um, well, just a great story, um, I recommend chapters 10, 11, and 12 of The Internationalists that um, Owen and I um, wrote. Um, but, um, you know, Kelson, Kelson, not easy to read. Let me lay out very basically what Kelsen's theory of law was f as it pertains to the issue in front of us, which is whether it makes sense to say that all laws are backed by sanctions. Now, Kelsen thought um, that um, all laws had to be, had to have sanctions. They had to um, have sanctions as part of their content, Main, meaning that all legal rules were rules which imposed duties on officials to impose sanctions in case certain behavior is not um, is not done. So, in the case of let's say the shelter-in-place order that uh, I'm currently subject to in New York, that not allowed to leave except under certain circumstances and leave the house under, at least under certain circumstances and how I have to comport myself when I'm outside. Really, the shelter in order place is not don't go outside, but rather courts. If these people go outside, impose sanctions on them if they do. Okay, so the rule itself has the sanction built into it. So as opposed to Austin, who thought that all rules are backed by sanctions, Kelsen thought that all rules have sanctions built into them. All rules are, are rules which impose duties on officials to impose sanctions under certain circumstances, okay? So properly speaking, from Kelsen's perspective, all rules are really directed at legal officials, not at ordinary citizens. And they direct officials to impose sanctions under certain circumstances, okay? So, um, the way Kelson would respond to Hart 
on paraconfirm rules is that you know, Hart, Hart says, well, not all rule, not all laws impose sanctions um, because there are these paraconfirm rules. Uh, Kelsen would say, no, 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 no. There is no such thing as a paraconfirm rule. Properly speaking, paraconfirm rules are fragments of duty-imposing rules which tell officials when to impose those sanctions, namely when the conditions specified by the fragmentary paraconfirm rules are not satisfied. Let me give you an example. Here's a paraconfirm rule, or what Hart would consider to be a paraconfirm rule. Okay, this is very, very rudimentary, of course. So take the following thing. A will is valid if and only if the testator, namely the one who writes the will, um, signs the will and two witnesses attest to it. Or we can put it in the, in, in, in the, um, in the form of a, um, where the conferring of the power is, is explicit. So we could say um, a testator has the power to distribute his, her, their property upon their demise via a written instrument if and only if the testator signs the will and two witnesses attest to it. Now that's how Hart would characterize the rule, but but Kelson would say no, no, no. That's the only part of the rule. If you really think about it, the the rule is this very long conditional, where the antecedent is what the testator has to do, and what the executor has to do, and then the consequent is what duties the court is under. So for Kelson. If if you were to really spell out what the legal the proper legal rule is in the in, in the case of wills, it would be if a testator signs a will and two witnesses attest to it, and the executor fails to execute the will, then a court is under a duty to sanction the executor. Okay, so really for Kelson, the rule which seems to confer power on the testator is really the conditions under which the court is under duty to impose a sanction on the executor if they don't execute the will. Okay, I hope that's, that's uh, somewhat clear. Now, what Kelson, what Hart says is that Oh, I'm sorry. Before before that, let me just say the following thing: that obviously, if you look at statutes and legal treatises and law review articles, you're not going to see the law uh, laid out, formulated in the way that Kelson states it. Right? It 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 it, it the when you learn trust in the states or you look up the, the, the law um, in the section of a code that deals with trust in the states, you're not going to see it being laid out as a very long conditional of all the conditions you have to, uh, have to obtain before a court is under duty to sanction the executor. Um, but what Kelson is saying is, well, sure, the surface grammar of the law doesn't look like I say it is, but really the deep grammar, the deep structure of the law is really of these really long conditionals. 
which end with the conditions under which courts are under a duty to impose sanctions for failure to act in certain ways. Now, when you read Hart's response to Kelson in chapter three of the concept of law, I actually find it unbelievably um, confusing, or at least I always found it really confusing. And um, students tend to find it confusing. Um, if you don't find it confusing, great. Um, um, but let me tell you what I think Hart's response was to Kelson. And I think it's a very powerful response. So whether it's Hart's or not, it doesn't matter. Ultimately, what matters is like, is Kelson right or is Hart right? Um, the key to responding to Kelson's attempt to say that power conferring rules are really fragments of duty imposing rules that impose duties on courts to sanction people under certain circumstances is that that, that, that kind of um, distorts what the function of the law is in these cases. The function of the law is to guide conduct, but the law guides lots of people's conduct. It guides the testator's conduct. It guides the executor's conduct. It guides the um, probate court's conduct. There are lots of ways in which the law guides conduct. And if, we're, if we think of the law from the perspective of rules which guide conduct, it's kind of silly to think that all rules are really directed at officials to impose sanctions on executors. I mean, you know, a lot of us have been thinking about, you know, we need to, we, you know, we may need to write our wills um, because of the life-threatening virus which is circulating right now. Um, if we went and we started looking up what the rules were, we would want to know how to actually write a will. Or if we went to our lawyer and our lawyer would want to look up in the code what the proper way to write a will is. It's supposed to guide our conduct. And if, if you know, when time comes for that will to be executed, the executor wants to know what they're supposed to do in those circumstances. So they look at the rules. And then if the executor doesn't actually execute the will, then the probate court has to figure out what to do. It's kind of backwards to think that, 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 that Will's law is directed at officials. No, it's directed at people who want to dispose of their estate in a certain way after they die. It's directed to executors who want to carry out the wishes of the people entrusted, who entrusted them to carry out their wishes. And then the probate court has to figure out what to do based on what testators and executors do. So if you think about the law as a way of guiding conduct, we're going to think that the law has many audiences, not simply 
officials, but also ordinary citizens. What I'm going to suggest later on is that what, what laws are are plans. That is, they are instructions about how to do certain things, how to live your life, how to accomplish certain goals. And if we think about laws as plans, then it's natural to think of plans as being individuated by their addressees, by who they're directed to. So like if a recipe, a recipe is directed towards somebody who's going to cook. A wills law is a plan for how to make wills. And the probate court has a set of plans given to it for how to deal with wills and the failure to execute them properly. So the problem ultimately with trying to say that power conferring rules are really fragments of duty imposing rules is that Kelson is misunderstanding that the function of the law is to guide conduct and that there are many, many audiences for the law. Okay, so I'm going to stop here because there's a lot to take in. And if, you, if you're not convinced by these arguments, first of all, I, I'm sure I did a lousy job um, explaining it. But, um, and, and please, by all, please go and read Heart for Yourself and um, just to be able to um, see whether what I say makes sense. Um, but... The, the, the point that I've tried to get across in this episode is that there's something fundamentally mistaken uh, about Austin's theory of rules that treats rules as being the um, commands or, or standards which are backed by sanctions because it ignores that there are these rules which are not there to discourage our behavior, but rather to give us abilities to do things we wouldn't be able to do without the law, and that they're addressed to us, those who are supposed to be exercising those powers and deriving those benefits, as opposed to kind of threats which are directed to officials in case we didn't act a certain way. It kind of is ignoring the self-conscious way in which the law is addressing us as members of a community to act in certain ways. The failure to recognize the power conferring nature of the law is to mistake the social function of the law. Anyway, I am going to stop here and I'm going, I'll go pick up um, with this um, uh, uh, next episode. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Thank you.
Hi, everyone. This is Scott Shapiro, and this is episode five of the Jurisprudence Course podcast. Um, I read somewhere on the internet uh, that it's April. I don't know if that's true, but um, that's what I read. Um, just a just a quick little story. I was uh, walking up Ninth Avenue, actually, and um, at seven o'clock at night, everyone in New York starts cheering, and there were a lot of high rises, and people came out onto their balcony, and they started cheering and knocking, uh, um, banging on pots, and um, it was really moving for the healthcare workers who've uh, put their lives on the line um, to help everyone who's gotten sick from uh, coronavirus, and. Um, and then a an ambulance uh, drove slowly up the street, and um, the driver uh, uh, smiled and waved. It was very, very moving. Um, so anyway, um, let's start um, with uh, talking, uh, continuing our conversation about Austin's theory of law and Hart's critique. So. Just, you know, let me just rehearse again what Austin's theory of law is, that uh, law is the general exp- uh, general commands backed by threats of sanctions issued by somebody who is habitually obeyed and habitually obeys no one else. So law equals rules plus sovereignty. And we discussed the first part of Hart's critique of Austin. Uh, Austin seems, uh, he directly says that all laws are general commands, commands are always impose obligations or in Hart's language impose duties. And what Hart argued was that that ignores uh, the other class of rules that the law has, which he calls power conferring rules, not just duty imposing rules. So it's not just that the law is there to stop you, to discourage you from acting on wishes that the law doesn't want you to act on, but also gives you amenities, gives you the ability, confers the power to uh, enable us to realize our wishes. Um, so that was the that's what we talked about in episode four. What I'd like to do is um, continue Hart's critique by investigating whether, even with respect to the duty imposing rules, like the rules of the criminal law and the rules of tort law, um, whether Austin's theory is the correct theory. So is it true that with respect to the duty imposing rules that they really are general commands, which are um, expressions uh, backed by threats of sanctions? Now, one, criticism you might make of Austin's theory of obligation is to point out that, you know, like people, people obey the law, not just because they're, they don't want to go to jail or to be fined or, or the shame associated with, um, with uh, law enforcement, but rather because they think that they are morally obligated to do so. And in fact, my colleague, Tom Tyler, um, has argued throughout his career that, in general, people obey the law 
uh, normally because they feel that they're morally obligated to do so, not in order to avoid uh, sanctions. Um, now, it, it, it's it's important to see that this is this itself is not a good criticism of Austin's theory because what Austin could say is, sure, of course, uh, people obey the law for many different reasons. Um, you know, some of them may think that they're morally obligated. They may be morally obligated to obey the law, but what makes the law the law is that it is general commands backed by threats to sanction. It doesn't Hi, everyone. This is Scott Shapiro, and this is episode five of the Jurisprudence Course podcast. Um, I read somewhere on the internet uh, that it's April. I don't know if that's true, but um, that's what I read. Um, just, a, just a quick little story. I was uh, walking up Ninth Avenue, actually, and... Um, at seven o'clock at night, everyone in New York starts cheering, and there were a lot of high rises, and people came out onto their balcony, and they started cheering and knocking, uh, um, banging on pots, and um, it was really moving for the healthcare workers who've uh, put their lives on the line um, to help everyone who's gotten sick from uh, coronavirus, and. Um, and then a an ambulance uh, drove slowly up the street, and um, the driver uh, uh, smiled and waved. It was very, very moving. Um, so anyway, um, let's start um, with uh, talking, uh, continuing our conversation about Austin's theory of law and Hart's critique. So. Just, you know, let me just rehearse again what Austin's theory of law is, that uh, law is the general exp uh, general commands backed by threats of sanctions issued by somebody who is habitually obeyed and habitually obeys no one else. So law equals rules plus sovereignty. And we discussed the first part of Hart's critique of Austin. Uh, Austin seems, uh, he directly says that all laws are general commands, commands are always impose obligations or in Hart's language impose duties. And what Hart argued was that that ignores uh, the other class of rules that the law has, which he calls power conferring rules, not just duty imposing rules. So it's not just that the law is there to stop you, to discourage you from acting on wishes that the law doesn't want you to act on, but also gives you amenities, gives you the ability, confers the power to uh, enable us to realize our wishes. Um, so that was the, that's what we talked about in episode four. What I'd like to do is um, continue Hart's critique by investigating whether even with respect to the duty imposing rules, like the rules of the criminal law, the rules of tort law, um, whether Austin's theory is the correct theory. 
So is it true that with respect to the duty imposing rules, that they really are general commands, which are um, expressions uh, backed by threats of sanctions? Now, one criticism you might make of Austin's theory of obligation is to point out that, you know, like people, people obey the law, not just because they're, they don't want to go to jail or to be fined or, or the shame associated with, um, with uh, law enforcement, but rather because they think that they are morally obligated to do so. And in fact, my colleague, Tom Tyler, um, has argued throughout his career that in general, people obey the law uh, normally because they feel that they're morally obligated to do so, not in order to avoid uh, sanctions. Um, now, it, it, it's, it's important to see that this, is, this itself is not a good criticism of Austin's theory, because what Austin could say is, sure, of course, uh, people obey the law for many different reasons. Um, you know, some of them may think that they're morally obligated. They may be morally obligated to obey the law, but what makes the law the law is that it is general commands backed by threats to sanction. It doesn't matter. Hi, everyone. This is Scott Shapiro, and this is episode five of the Jurisprudence Course podcast. Um, I read somewhere on the internet uh, that it's April. I don't know if that's true, but um, that's what I read. Um, just, a, just a quick little story. I was uh, walking up Ninth Avenue, actually, and... Um, at seven o'clock at night, everyone in New York starts cheering and there were a lot of high rises and people came out onto their balcony and they started cheering and knocking, uh, banging on pots. And um, it was really moving for the healthcare workers who've uh, put their lives on the line um, to help everyone who's gotten sick from uh, coronavirus. And, um, and then a, an ambulance uh, drove slowly up the street and um, the driver uh, uh, smiled and waved. It was very, very moving. Um, so anyway, um, let's start um, with uh, talking, uh, continuing our conversation about Austin's theory of law and Hart's critique. So just, you know, let me just rehearse again what Austin's theory of law is, that uh, law is the general exp uh, general commands backed by threats of sanctions issued by somebody who is habitually obeyed and habitually obeys no one else. So law equals rules plus sovereignty. And we discussed the first part of Hart's critique of Austin. Uh, Austin seems, uh, he directly says that all laws are general commands, commands are always impose obligations or in Hart's language impose duties. 
And what Hart argued was that that ignores uh, the other class of rules that the law has, which he calls power conferring rules, not just duty imposing rules. So it's not just that the law is there to stop you, to discourage you from acting on wishes that the law doesn't want you to act on, but also gives you amenities, gives you the ability, confers the power to uh, enable us to realize our wishes. Um, so that was the that's what we talked about in episode four. What I'd like to do is um, continue Hart's critique by investigating whether, even with respect to the duty imposing rules, like the rules of the criminal law, the rules of tort law, um, whether Austin's theory is the correct theory. So is it true that with respect to the duty imposing rules, that they really are general commands, which are um, expressions uh, backed by threats of sanctions? Now, one criticism you might make of Austin's theory of obligation is to point out that, you know, like people, people obey the law, not just because they're, they don't want to go to jail or to be fined or, or the shame associated with, um, with uh, law enforcement, but rather because they think that they are morally obligated to do so. And in fact, my colleague, Tom Tyler, um, has argued throughout his career that in general, people obey the law uh, normally because they feel that they're morally obligated to do so, not in order to avoid uh, sanctions. Um, now, it, it, it's, it's important to see that this, is, this itself is not a good criticism of Austin's theory, because what Austin could say is, sure, of course, uh, people obey the law for many different reasons. Um, you know, some of them may think that they're morally obligated. They may be morally obligated to obey the law, but what makes the law the law is that it is general commands backed by threats to sanction. It doesn't Hi, everyone. This is Scott Shapiro, and this is episode five of the Jurisprudence Course podcast. Um, I read somewhere on the internet uh, that it's April. I don't know if that's true, but um, that's what I read. Um, just, a, just a quick little story. I was uh, walking up Ninth Avenue, actually, and... Um, at seven o'clock at night, everyone in New York starts cheering and there were a lot of high rises and people came out onto their balcony and they started cheering and knocking, uh, um, banging on pots. And um, it was really moving for the healthcare workers who've uh, put their lives on the line um, to help everyone who's gotten sick from uh, coronavirus. And, um, and then a, an ambulance 
uh, drove slowly up the street and um, the driver uh, uh, smiled and waved. It was very, very moving. Um, so anyway, um, let's start um, with uh, talking, uh, continuing our conversation about Austin's theory of law and Hart's critique. So just, you know, let me just rehearse again what Austin's theory of law is, that uh, law is the general exp- uh, general commands backed by threats of sanctions issued by somebody who is habitually obeyed and habitually obeys no one else. So law equals rules plus sovereignty. And we discussed the first part of Hart's critique of Austin. Uh, Austin seems, uh, he directly says that all laws are general commands. Commands are always impose obligations or in Hart's language, impose duties. And what Hart argued was that that ignores uh, the other class of rules that the law has, which he calls power conferring rules, not just duty imposing rules. So it's not just that the law is there to stop you, to discourage you from acting on wishes that the law doesn't want you to act on, but also gives you amenities, gives you the ability, confers the power to uh, enable us to realize our wishes. Um, so that was the that's what we talked about in episode four. What I'd like to do is um, continue Hart's critique by investigating whether, even with respect to the duty-imposing rules, like the rules of the criminal law and the rules of tort law, um, whether Austin's theory is the correct theory. So is it true that with respect to the duty-imposing rules that they really are general commands, which are um, expressions uh, backed by threats of sanctions? Now, one criticism you might make of Austin's theory of obligation is to point out that, you know, like people, people obey the law, not just because they're, they don't want to go to jail or to be fined or, or the shame associated with, um, with uh, law enforcement, but rather because they think that they are morally obligated to do so. And in fact, my colleague, Tom Tyler, um, has argued throughout his career that, in general, people obey the law uh, normally because they feel that they're morally obligated to do so, not in order to avoid uh, sanctions. Um, now, it, it, it's, it's important to see that this, is, this itself is not a good criticism of Austin's theory, because what Austin could say is, sure, of course, uh, people obey the law for many different reasons. Um, you know, some of them may think that they're morally obligated. They may be morally obligated to obey the law, but what makes the law the law is that it is general commands backed by threats of sanction. It doesn't Hi, everyone. This is Scott Shapiro, and this is episode five of the Jurisprudence 
course podcast. Um, I read somewhere on the internet uh, that it's April. I don't know if that's true, but um, that's what I read. Um, just a just a quick little story. I was uh, walking up Ninth Avenue, actually, and um, at seven o'clock at night, everyone in New York starts cheering, and there were a lot of high rises and people came out onto their balcony and they started cheering and knocking uh, um, banging on pots. And um, it was really moving for the healthcare workers who've uh, put their lives on the line um, to help everyone who's gotten sick from uh, coronavirus. And, um, and then a, an ambulance uh, drove slowly up the street and um, the driver uh, uh, smiled and waved. It was very, very moving. Um, so anyway, um, let's start um, with uh, talking, uh, continuing our conversation about Austin's theory of law and Hart's critique. So just, you know, let me just rehearse again what Austin's theory of law is, that uh, law is the general exp- uh, general commands backed by threats of sanctions issued by somebody who is habitually obeyed and habitually obeys no one else. So law equals rules plus sovereignty. And we discussed the first part of Hart's critique of Austin. Uh, Austin seems, uh, he directly says that all laws are general commands. Commands are always imposed obligations or in Hart's language imposed duties. And what Hart argued was that that ignores uh, the other class of rules that the law has, which he calls power conferring rules, not just duty imposing rules. So it's not just that the law is there to stop you, to discourage you from acting on wishes that the law doesn't want you to act on, but also gives you amenities, gives you the ability, confers the power to uh, enable us to realize our wishes. Um, so that was the that's what we talked about in episode four. What I'd like to do is um, continue Hart's critique by investigating whether, even with respect to the duty imposing rules, like the rules of the criminal law and the rules of tort law, um, whether Austin's theory is the correct theory. So is it true that with respect to the duty-imposing rules that they really are general commands, which are um, expressions uh, backed by threats of sanctions? Now, one criticism you might make of Austin's theory of obligation is to point out that, you know, like people, people obey the law not just because they they don't want to go to jail or to be fined or or the shame associated with um, with uh, law enforcement, but rather because they think that they are morally obligated to do so. And in fact, my colleague Tom Tyler um, has argued throughout his career that in general people obey the law. Uh, normally because they feel that they're morally obligated to do so, not in order to avoid uh, sanctions. Um, now, it, it, it's, it's important to see that this, is, this itself is not 
a good criticism of Austin's theory? Because what Austin could say is, sure, of course, people obey the law for many different reasons. Um, you know, some of them may think that they're morally obligated. They may be morally obligated to obey the law. But what makes the law the law is that it is general commands backed by threats to sanction. It doesn't 